Well, again, I want to extend a, a welcome to you again. It's good to have you this morning. If you are here with us for the first time or nearly the first time, we are grateful to have you. You know, it's always a strange experience to visit a new church, but we hope this morning for you it's a pleasant one. Uh, we love the Word of God here. Uh, the Word of God is an endless treasure, and we delight in uh, savoring who God is through the words on the page. And so, um, again, so we, we are grateful that you joined us here. Again, you have lots of options to choose from in this uh, vast uh, metro, metropolis, metroplex area, and so we take it, a, we take it very seriously to uh, minister and help you in any way we can. So please do not hesitate to talk to me uh, or one of the elders. Um, and elders, if you can raise your hand. There's a few among us here. So, Grand, those are uh, two of our uh, five elders, and, and uh, so please don't hesitate at all to let us know how we can serve you. But I want to begin by saying that for most people, the... Christmas holiday is a scandalous disappointment. You see, for so many people, the Christmas season is sort of this annual hoax that things will finally get better, but they never actually do. And you see, the reason for that is because the Christmas season, for most people, the Christmas season is sort of, is filled with these fantasy-fueled expectations that the Christmas spirit, whatever that is, will somehow bring them the happiness they've always wanted, but never actually experienced, and every year the outcome is exactly the same. Nothing ever actually changes. Not really, anyway. Because you see, the false myth of Christmas that people buy into is if they can make the fantasy look like reality, uh, like the fairy tale expectations in their minds, that maybe, j just maybe, things this year can be different. Maybe, just maybe, this year, things can change. Things can turn around in my life. And yet, when December 26th rolls around, People are left with the open mess of presence and the mess of their lives and the reason why nothing is different, get this now, is because the Savior in whom they believe never actually got out of the manger. The reason why they were double-crossed again by the Christmas season is because the Christ in whom they believe is not the King who has all authority in heaven and on earth. He's not the sovereign emperor of the universe who deserves our allegiance. He's not the long-awaited lamb of God who was slain for sinners. The fatal flaw of their holiday expectations is that they just don't realize that everything they were created to need and enjoy forever is not found in their circumstances, but in the God who became man for us and for our salvation. And you see, that's not only the meaning and goal of Christmas, that's the meaning and goal of life itself. And our Advent theme this year at Christ Community, as you know, is when God broke the silence. Meaning when God spoke after centuries of silence, a 400-year drought of silence, he, he spoke and revealed himself. And of course, we know that God had spoken before this moment. He had spoken before that it, through centuries, a whole battalion of prophets throughout history, Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel and Jonah and Micah and Nahum and a whole battalion of prophets throughout the centuries. And yet this kind of speaking was radically different, wasn't it? This was a totally different kind of speech act from God. Why? 
Because when God finally spoke after 400 years of silence, he did so in the most staggering way possible, namely, in his son, the word made flesh. Long lay the world in sin and error pining, but then he appeared and the soul felt its worth. See, that moment right there, the incarnation, that is the absolute deal breaker of the universe. Why? Why is this such a big deal? Because, because the arrival of Jesus Christ to the planet literally solves the deepest dilemma in the universe, which is how do hell-deserving sinners get reconciled to God as the treasure of their soul? How does this happen? And every year, we sing the answer. Peace on earth and mercy mild, God and sinners reconciled. Why? How did this happen? Because God broke the silence and revealed himself in his son, Jesus Christ. And you see, it's as your friend and as your fellow soldier in the trenches and as your pastor, what I want for you more than anything else on the planet is that we would see and we would savor Jesus Christ together for the supremely valuable treasure that he is. So that means my gift to you this Christmas is the names and the titles of Jesus Christ. In other words, to help you see and savor Christ this Christmas, to help you see with laser-like precision just exactly who it is we are to be captivated by, I have compiled the names and titles of Christ from the Gospel of John, and for the good of our souls, we're gonna, I'm going to preach on those names of Christ. And believe it or not, I've got 10 of them. And yes, we will finish on time. Ten names and titles of Christ to help you see, get this, that everything you need or could possibly ask for in this life is found in one person, namely the Lord Jesus Christ. And so here we go. Here we go, the names and titles of Jesus Christ. Maybe you have half sheets, notes. Here's where we're going. This morning, I want you to see from John's gospel, ten titles. Ten titles of Christ designed to persuade you that he is everything you need for life, reality, ministry, and eternity. That's where we're going. Ten titles of Christ from John's gospel to persuade you, designed to persuade you that he is everything you need for life, and reality, and ministry, and eternity. And so ready or not, here we go. Number one, Jesus Christ is the word. The first title of Christ, he is the word. Might not be a bad idea to turn to John chapter one. Now you remember, don't you, how John begins his gospel? It's totally unlike the other gospel writers, isn't it? You remember that the gospel of Mark begins when Christ is around 30 years of age at the beginning of his ministry. Luke begins his gospel at the birth of Christ. Matthew, on the other hand, begins with a genealogy tracing the lineage of Christ back a thousand years to King David to prove that he is the promised Messiah to come. But you see, John has zero interest in genealogies or the human birth of Christ. Rather, John conspires to blow our minds with the reality that Jesus Christ never had a beginning. 
John reaches all the way back into eternity past, centuries, infinite centuries before the creation of the world. He pushes the uh, abilities of human comprehension to their limit by unfolding the reality that Jesus Christ is eternal, eternally existing before creation, and you can see it in the text. Look at John 1, verse 1. You know it well. In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God. And the Word was God. Now, do you see it? God is God alone, and yet He is not alone, and He has never been alone, because for all eternity there was someone with Him whom John calls the Word which means you have God and the word eternally pre-existing together before creation. And what we're dying to know is who is the word and why is he called the word and what does it mean to be called the word? And I know you already know the answer, but trace with me through chapter one to see who the word is. In verse one, we see that the word was not only with God, but he was God. But then skip down to verse nine. He's called the true light. Skip down to verse 14. It says he's the only one from the Father, full of grace and truth. But then you look at verse 17, and John finally pulls back the curtain of mystery and and reveals to us that the Word, who is eternal, who is God, who is the light, who is from the Father, who is full of grace and truth, that he is none other than Jesus Christ himself. And I know you know that, and you've always known that. But see, here's the question, why is he called the word? Why not the thought or the feeling or the power? Why, why is he not called the love? Why is he called the word? And the answer is because words define and display who you are. Just as our words say everything about who we are, so Christ, who is the Word, says everything about who God is. Christ, who is the Word, reveals God and displays God because He is God. In other words, you could say it this way, the God who is invisible became visible when He came to earth as a man. And that is incredible. And that has countless earth-shattering implications for our lives. And I'll give you one, just one implication. And the implication is this. Many people, sometimes even in the church, tend to view God as distant, as remote, as impersonal, and as disconnected. Don't they? unable, unwilling to sympathize or relate to our grief and suffering. I mean, what right does God have to tell me about pain and suffering? What does he know? I'll tell you what he knows. God is the foremost authority on pain and suffering because he himself became a man and lived it. You remember that Isaiah 53.3 says that Jesus Christ would be a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. He knows. He gets it. He sympathizes with our pain and suffering because he himself became a man and lived it all. Loneliness, he's been there. Temptation, no one experienced more. Heartbreak and sorrow, 
Abandonment from people, rejection, pain, suffering, crucifixion, and death. This God knows how to sympathize, and that changes everything about our perceptions of who God is, doesn't it? We could say more, but that brings us to the second title of Christ, number two. He is the true light and the light of the world. He is the true light and the light of the world. And we see this in chapter 1, verse 9, don't we? Speaking of Christ, it says, He was the true light which comes into the world. Several chapters later, chapter 8, verse 12, Christ looks at a large crowd of people and says, I am the light of the world. The one who follows me shall never walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life. You see, Jesus Christ is the light. And yet the question is, what does it even mean for him to be the light? What is the point of the metaphor? Well, if darkness is a spiritual metaphor for sin, evil, death, and eternal hell, and it is, then that means that Jesus Christ himself is the remedy and solution for all those things. He is the remedy and solution for the darkness, for the sin, for the evil, for the suffering, for eternal hell. He himself is the remedy. He is, get this, the all-satisfying source of life and truth and the eternal salvation that rescues us from what we so deserve. In other words, to be the light very simply means that Jesus Christ is the answer to everything. He's the one who makes life make sense. He himself is the very meaning of life. And so my question is, do you see the shocking relevance of the fact that Jesus Christ is the light? The relevance is this. Think about it. What for you right now, be honest with yourself, what for you right now are the deepest burdens and fears and struggles and anxieties that are in your life right this second? Because we've all got them. And by that I mean that what are, what are the things in life that baffle you and weigh upon you and maybe even terrify you and perplex you and the things in your life about which you have no idea what to do? Do you have anything like that in your life? Because here's the question. Doesn't light sound like exactly what you need? Guess what? That is exactly what you need. Because Jesus Christ is the light and that means that all of the sufficiency and the stability and the security and the satisfaction you are looking for is found only in Christ who is the light. Which brings us to the third title of Christ, number three. He is the Lamb of God. He is the Lamb of God. And you know, I'll just tell you the interconnectedness, the cohesiveness of the Bible continues to stagger me. And by that I mean the, the profound connections that you see from the Old Testament to the New Testament. You see, what that tells us is that the Bible is not this random collection of miscellaneous tales, but the Bible is in fact a drama, a divine drama, a theological 
play, a sacred script, a masterpiece of redemption unfolding in human history. And you see the hero, the protagonist, the star of the show was most profoundly introduced to the public 2,000 years ago when John the Baptist seized Christ coming towards him and in front of a crowd of thousands of people declares at the top of his lungs, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. I don't know if you realize this or not, but that is one of the most theologically loaded statements in the entirety of the Bible. Why? Because when John said that he has done something profound, what has he done? He's just finished an incomplete sentence. A a sort of fill in the blanks. You see, when, when John declared Christ to be the Lamb of God, he has just made a direct connection between Christ and the entire sacrificial system found in the Old Testament. Because you remember, right? You remember that, that God in the Old Testament provided animal sacrifices for sin, lambs and bulls and goats as offerings for sin. But you see, the thing is, all they were was just a picture and a pointer and a portrayal and a preview of the one great final sacrifice to come who would make an end of sin by the sacrifice of himself. And that's not all. John is also pointing 700 years before this to the prophet Isaiah when Isaiah 53, 7 says that the Messiah to come would be like a lamb led to the slaughter. Don't you see? It's all there. It's all connected. We hate movies that have plot holes where it doesn't add up, where there's loose ends. We we hate movies like that. This plot has no plot holes. Everything connects. It's all there. The lamb has come. And so my question for you, in all seriousness is, have you been purchased by the lamb? Do you belong to the lamb? Has the infinite adoption fee for your soul been paid by the Lamb? And if you do belong to the Lamb, my question for you is, do you carry within your soul the hope that what Christ purchased was not just forgiveness for your sins, but that he purchased with his death all the power you need to overcome sin and temptation in the present. You see, the Lamb of God doesn't just rescue sinners from destruction. He renovates our lives with the power of sovereign grace. The fourth title of Christ, number four, he is the King of Israel. He is the King of Israel. And I don't know if you've noticed this or not, but how prominent the theme of King is in our Christmas songs. Have you noticed how prominent that theme is? It's, it's everywhere in these songs. Come and behold him, born the king of angels. Worship Christ, the newborn king. Noel, Noel, born is the king of Israel. What child is this who laid to rest on Mary's lap is sleeping? This is Christ, the king whom shepherds guard and angels sing. This is literally everywhere in Christmas songs because it is literally everywhere in the Bible. For centuries, for centuries, the Jews are looking and waiting for the great king who would come and single-handedly end the reign of terror in the world. And this king is found in Genesis 49 and 2 Samuel 7 
and Psalm 2 and Psalm 45 and Isaiah 9 and Isaiah 11 and Jeremiah 23 and Ezekiel 37 and Zephaniah 3 and Daniel 7 and Zechariah 14. I guess this is kind of a big deal. And it should be a big deal to you. Why? Because this is not just about Israel. This is your king also. And you need to know that one day he will come and he will make all things be the way they ought to be. But you see, the question I have for you in all seriousness is, do you trust your king? Do you trust your king? Do, do you trust him to be for you and to do for you what is best for you? Because what's best for you is himself. And let's just face it, you will never have all the money you want or the clothes you want, or the house you want, or the job you want, or the physique you want, or the hair you want. But when you have Christ the King, you have everything you could possibly need or want forever. Which brings us to the fifth title of Christ, number five. He is the Son of God. He is the Son of God. And I've had many conversations with unbelievers who raise the criticism, who, who are skeptical, hostile of Christianity, and they'll say, okay, you believe that Jesus Christ is God. Fine, I get that. But what they'll ask is, why didn't, if that's true, why didn't Christ just come out and say that he was God? Why didn't he just say it? I mean, he would have made things so much easier if he would have just said the words, I am God, to which I have two responses. One what makes you think he didn't just come out and claim to be God? And number two, what if Christ didn't need to say the words, I am God, to claim to be God? What if he claimed to be God in terms just as equal, if not stronger, than simply saying the words, I am God? Because guess what? When Christ calls himself the Son of God, Making a claim to being equal with God is exactly what he did. That, that's a claim to deity. That's a claim to be divine. That's a claim to be equal with God himself. And that seems weird, right? Because to be called the son kind of makes it seem like you're less than God. Like a little God, a baby God, a God in training, someone who's less than God but more than man. I mean, what does it mean that Jesus Christ is the Son of God? You've got to get a handle on this. And you have to understand the Jews in Christ's day understood that as a claim to be deity. John chapter 5, do you remember the scene? John chapter 5, Christ does a miracle on the Sabbath, which just happens to break some of the nitpicky rules of the Pharisees. And yet instead of apologizing for his crime, Christ pushes them, provokes them, pushes them to the absolute brink by claiming to be equal with God and they go absolutely ballistic. And guess what title he used of himself to push him, to push them over the edge to desire to kill him? What, what title do you think he used to show them that he is not just a man, that he is God himself? Guess what title? the Son of God. Listen very carefully to John 5, verse 18. John 5, 18 is very peculiar. It says, For this reason, the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Why? 
because he was calling God his own father, thus making himself equal with God. <laughs> See, they heard it. They got it. They understood it. And they hated it. I said, did you see what's transpiring here when Christ calls himself the Son of God? He's not claiming to be a second God in addition to or in competition with the Father. In calling himself the Son of God, he's claiming to be absolutely equal to the Father as God and yet simultaneously different from the Father as the Son of God. In other words, to be, God, to be the Son of God is to be God the Son, the second person of the Trinity himself. This is a Trinitarian term. And my, oh my, the Trinity. Try to understand the Trinity and you will lose your mind. Deny the Trinity and you lose your soul. Listen to John 20, verse 31. This is essentially the purpose statement, the reason why John wrote his gospel. Listen very carefully to what he says. These things have been written. Why? In order that you should believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you should have life in his name. Did you hear what he said? Did you hear what he said is at stake and whether or not you believe that Jesus is the Son of God or not? Everything is at stake. Our souls hang in the balance, are completely contingent upon whether we believe that Christ is the Son of God or not. And so that's the million-dollar question for you. Do you believe that Jesus is the Son of God? In other words, do you believe that he is God the Son the second person of the Trinity himself. And by believe, I don't merely mean do you believe that he was a real historical person. I mean, do you believe that all that Christ is and all that Christ demands is the secret to your joy? Because that's what it means to be a Christian. But that brings us to the sixth title of Christ. And maybe my favorite, Christ is the I am. He is the I am. Because you remember, don't you? You remember God's response to Moses' question 1,400 years before this when Moses asked God his name. Do you remember that scene in Exodus 3? Moses asked God his name, to which God replies, my name? Oh, oh, I'll tell you my name. My name is Echyeh. Asher Echyeh in the Hebrew. I am who I am. God said his name is I am who I am. What does that mean? At the very least, it means that he is beginningless. He is endless he is eternal. He is self-existent. He is never changing, never aging, who always was and is and will be. He is what he is and he does what he pleases. He is the ultimate reality with which all men must deal on his terms or be destroyed. He is the I am. 
And seven times, seven times, Christ took that name, the most sacred, provocative name of God upon his lips and applied it to himself. And you remember the scene at the end of John 8, don't you? Christ claims to have seen Abraham with his very own eyes, which is actually pretty screwy because Abraham lived 2,000 years before Christ. And the Pharisees are just, they, they do not know what to do with this. Verse 57, they reply, hold on a second, that doesn't make any sense. You are not even yet 50 years old and you have seen Abraham? That is impossible. That's impossible. Is it? Is that impossible? It is impossible. That is, unless, of course, you eternally existed before Abraham. Which is exactly what Christ says in verse 58. You remember John 8, 58, don't you? It says this. Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, here it is, before Abraham was born, I am. I am. Do, do you see that? In response to their incredulity that is claimed to having seen Abraham, he looks them right in the eyes and he declares to them at point blank range, I am who I am. Not only have I seen Abraham, I have eternally existed before him. I am Abraham's God. I am your God. I am the God who is. And the religious leaders had no question as to what he meant because in the very next verse, they pick up stones to kill him because the Old Testament says to kill those who blaspheme. But the trick is, when he claimed to be God, it wasn't blasphemy. It was real. And so my question for you this morning is, do you love him? Do you love the I am? Do, do you see him for the supremely valuable treasure that he is? And, and my guess is in answering that question, the, your guilt meter went right through the roof because you probably feel the same way that I do. And your response is the same as mine. Well, I do love him. But so oftentimes I find that I love him so little. Is that how you feel? And then I need to remind you that Christmas celebrates that Christ came to the planet to do two things all at the same time. Number one, Christ came to the planet to pay for your failures to love him in the way he ought to be loved. And number two, Christ came to the planet to provide for you the very power you need to love him in the way he ought to be loved. Do you see? This is, this is incredible. See, see, Jesus Christ is not just a savior who demands our affection. He is a savior who produces that affection in our souls through his power, through his word. He doesn't just say, do what I command. He says, do what I command through the very power that I provide. He is a divine savior. He is the I am. Which brings us to the seventh title of Christ, number seven. He is the bread of life. He is the bread of life. And you remember when Christ said this, don't you? John chapter six. And he said this title fittingly after he multiplied enough food to feed a football stadium. 
And the title was so significant that he actually said it twice, once in verse 35 and then again in verse 48. And, and, and notice the definite article, the bread of life, the food of life, the feast of life. He's not one of many options on the table. He's not hors d'oeuvres or an appetizer or a garnish or a side dish. No, he is the main course entree on the table of life, which means, get this now, Jesus Christ just made the gargantuan claim that all of the soul satisfaction that we seek in all of our pursuits can only actually be found in him. And we know that's what he means because what he says at the end of chapter 6, verse 35, he says, the one who comes to me shall never hunger. Do you hunger this morning? He says, the one who believes in me shall never thirst. Do you thirst this morning? And, and, and what he said doesn't make any sense, does it? I mean, what kind of bread not only satisfies one's hunger, what kind of bread actually quenches their thirst? What kind of bread does that? This kind. This kind does that. You see, that's who Jesus Christ is. He is the feast of the soul who can do what nothing else on the planet can do, namely fulfill the deepest cravings of the soul. So, so do you not see the implications of this? I know you do. The, implications is, the implication is the essence of Christianity is not to deny your longings for pleasure, it is to indulge your longings for pleasure. That's Christianity. Indulge your longings for pleasure in the one who alone can fulfill them, that is. And I don't know if you, you realize this, but this talk of, of pleasure and satisfaction, this right here gets to the very heart of your deepest struggles with sin. It does. You see, we need to understand that the experience as a Christian, the experience of faith in Christ is you every day having to ask and answer the same question a thousand times a day. Here's the question. Here's the question that you essentially have to ask for all of your struggles, all your battles, everything that you go to war with every single day. Here's the question that you're actually asking whether you know it or not. What satisfies more? That's the question. What really holds a superior pleasure? What is it really that fulfills the deepest cravings of the soul? Is it really the sin with which I'm being tempted right now? Is that what satisfies? Or, or is that a cheap imitation, a counterfeit, an imitation of the real thing? You see, faith in Christ is you holding on to Christ, looking for a superior pleasure that triumphs over the suicidal pleasures of sin. That is faith in the bread of life. Which brings us to the eighth title of Christ, number eight. Jesus Christ is the good shepherd. He is the good shepherd. And you know, I have this growing and even morbid fascination with the prophet Ezekiel. One day you will sit through preaching on the book of Ezekiel. Those days are coming. 
And I think one of the reasons why I love Ezekiel so much is because of the multidimensional picture of the Messiah that Ezekiel gives us. You see, Ezekiel portrays for us that the Messiah to come, who has come and who will come again, is so many different things all at the same time. It's really breathtaking. It's really incredible. In other words, if you want to grow in your love and affection for Jesus Christ, you read Ezekiel. You see, Ezekiel portrays for us that the Messiah to come, he would be God himself who saves his people. Ezekiel portrays that the Messiah to come would be the king who rules over his people. Ezekiel reveals that the Messiah to come would be a prince who who represents his people. He portrays the Messiah to come who would be a servant and who would serve his people and give them what they need. But that's not all. He also presents the Messiah as a shepherd, a shepherd who cares, who loves his people. And so when Christ proclaimed in John 10, verse 11, I am the good shepherd, the book of Ezekiel is exactly what he's talking about. This isn't just some touchy-feely metaphor to make us feel sentimental. When he called himself the good shepherd, he was claiming to be the fulfillment of ancient prophecy. He is a shepherd. He is your shepherd. And I just want you to know, that we would all save ourselves so much trouble and we would run to things for comfort and joy and fulfillment and security and satisfaction. We would run to to those other things way less if we remember the fact that Jesus Christ is a shepherd. And yet what does it mean that he is a shepherd? Well, you remember the psalm, don't you? Psalm 23. Yahweh is my shepherd. I shall not want, meaning what? Meaning he satisfies the soul. He lays me down in green pastures. He guides me beside quiet waters. He comforts the soul. He soothes the soul. It goes on. He he restores my soul. He guides me in paths of righteousness for the sake of his name. In other words, he makes me holy. He makes me righteous. He gives me what I need to obey him. Although I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will not fear evil. Why? For you are with me, your rod and your staff. They comfort me. He protects me. He consoles me. He reassures me. You will prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. He vindicates me. He provides for me. He cares for me. And you know how it ends. Surely, goodness and loving kindness. And the Hebrew literally says, pursue me. It doesn't say follow. It says, surely goodness and loving kindness shall pursue me, track me down all the days of my life and I will dwell in the house of Yahweh forever. We need to understand, we need new lenses to see life that every day of our lives is a gift from our shepherd. And one day your shepherd king will bring you home safely to his satisfying kingdom forever. My point is this, all the security, all the stability, all the safety, all the satisfaction you are looking for is found ultimately in your shepherd. Which brings us to the ninth title of Christ. We're almost home. The ninth title of Christ, number nine, 
He is the resurrection and the life. Jesus Christ is the resurrection and the life. And you remember the scene in John 11, don't you? It's breathtaking. Christ gets a note from a friend saying that his dear friend Lazarus is sick. Hint, hint, come and heal him now before it's too late. Now what does Christ do? Pack his bags, catch an Uber, head over to Bethany. No, he doesn't move a muscle and he lets Lazarus die. He let him die. Because he had something more profound in mind than the mere healing of an illness. He shows up four days late to the funeral. Lazarus is stiff and rotting in the tomb. the, The family is just a mess. Martha, the sister of Lazarus, sees Christ with hurt, confusion, and a little bit of accusation in her voice. She greets him with these words, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. In other words, where were you? Where were you? We, we called you. Where were you when we needed you? And yet she composes herself. She's a godly lady. She composes herself and she says, but, but I know that whatever you ask God, he will give to you. To which Christ replies, your brother shall rise again. But she's confused. She thinks that he's talking about the great day of resurrection at the end of the age. And so she says, well, I know that he shall rise again in the resurrection at the last day. But then Christ does that thing, you know, where he rocks people's world. He does that here in John 11, verse 25. There's no, you don't understand. I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me, even if he should die, he shall live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die forever. Do you believe this, he asks. And what he meant was clear and unmistakable. Hear this now. He said, I have the cure for death. I am the cure for death because I am the source of life. Confession time, I think about my death. Maybe I'm kind of a morbid person. I think about my death all the time. Every ache and pain, oh, here it is. This this is the big one. Every plane where there's turbulence, here it is. This is it, going home. And yet, notwithstanding my fears of death, the, the implication of this title of Christ to be the resurrection and life, the application is very simple. Here it is. You ready? It doesn't matter how you die or when you die. It doesn't matter. It's completely irrelevant. It is completely irrelevant. It is meaningless. Why? Because at the end of the age, at the rapture, Christ will descend and he will call you by name. And all of the rotted, decomposed bits and crumbs that used to be you will be supernaturally reassembled and you will rise again just as if you had never died in the first place. He is the cure for death. He is the source of life. This changes everything. 
And, and, and the, the point is, if he has death covered, in other words, if he has the cure for death under his belt, and he does, then that means that everything in your lives leading up to your death is also under his absolute undisputed dominion. Another confession. I dread funerals. I know that's a terrible thing for a pastor to say, but I dread them. I, I, I just, I really struggle going to funerals. And I think the reason why is because we're coming face to face in that moment with the enemy, not Satan, but death. We're facing the end that we all must face unless the rapture comes. We're facing the end and the, the great curse upon Adam and the human race, the, the, this portal, this terrifying portal that we all must pass through, and it is a dreadful thing to, to be a part of. And yet, and yet, that being said, one day there will be a funeral that we will all love to attend. Do you know whose funeral that is? Death's. One day death will have a funeral. And I'm going to look at you, and you're going to look at me, and we're going to look at the casket, I guess. And we're going to just nod and say, this is what we were waiting for, this. Remember that? Remember when you talked about that? Yeah, I remember. Here's the end. And we will celebrate at that funeral. And that's going to happen when Christ returns at the second coming. Listen to 1 Corinthians 15. Listen to what it says about Christ. It says, for he must reign until he puts all enemies under his feet and the last enemy to be destroyed is death. One day death will have a funeral and you and I will be there if you are in Christ to enjoy it. Which brings us last, least, finally, to the 10th title of Christ. The 10th title of Christ, number 10, he is your Lord and your God. Jesus Christ is your Lord and your God. You know, about a year after I became a believer, I wasn't raised in a Christian home. Christianity was very new to me. And after a year after I became a Christian, I went through about a year-long period of really excruciating and intense doubt. I doubted and I questioned everything about the Bible. The existence of God, the creation of the world, the reliability of the Bible. Was King David a real person? Is there any evidence for, for Jesus Christ as a historical person? Can I really trust this Bible? Can I really trust this, this book that I am to place the, you know, mistake my entire eternity on it? Can I trust this? Those are the kind of questions I asked, and it was brutal, and it was long, and it was agonizing, and it took a long time for the breakthrough. And, and, and agonizing though that experience was, I wouldn't trade it for anything in the world. You know why? Because it forced me to see that the reason for my doubt was not because there was no evidence, because there was. Tons of it. Tons of, of undeniable evidence that confirms everything that the scriptures say. That was not the problem. The problem was that I did not know how to trust the one about whom the evidence testified which is exactly the problem with Thomas, the disciple. Do you remember him? Doubting Thomas. 
The one who absolutely refused to believe that Christ had risen from the dead until or unless he saw him with his very own eyes. Do you remember him? And one day he did see Christ, didn't he? He did see Christ with his very own eyes. They're in a room together, kind of moping around, and Christ appeared into the room. He just, he just transported himself into the room without using the door. And there he stood real and alive and physical and tangible and resurrected. And what did Thomas say in response? Do you remember? The only appropriate thing that he could say, my Lord and my God. Ha kurios mu kaihatheos mu, my Lord and my God. Only the greatest profession of faith recorded in human history. Here I am. I'm face to face with the infinite, eternal, uncaused, uncreated, sovereign God of the universe. This is Yahweh, and he's here, and I see him, and he was right. Because that's what you do with the evidence. You declare and worship Christ as your Lord and your God. And yet, and yet, do you remember what Christ said in response to that? He said the weirdest thing. In response to Thomas's incredible profession of faith, Christ says the words, because you have seen me, do you now believe? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe. Do you, do you hear what he's done? He's just pronounced a blessing upon centuries and centuries of believers who will have believed in him as God without ever actually having seen him with their own eyes. Which means he's talking about who? Oh, I don't know, you? <laughs> because he knows. He gets it. He knows faith is hard. He, he knows faith is beyond our strength. He knows that Thomas enjoys the rare privilege of, of seeing Christ with his own eyes. He knows that most of the believers in history will worship him as Lord and God without ever having laid eyes upon him. But you see, those who have died in Christ do see him now and one day you will too. One day you will see him. Either at your death or at the rapture. And yet the question is, what about until that day? What about until that day? Because I don't know about you, I'm not super excited to have to wait around till my death or you know, the, the arrival of Christ to remove us. I'm not super excited to have to wait until then to see Christ. So the question is, is there anything tangible for you to hold on to now? Is there anything for you to have now to hold on to, to cling to? Is there anything? And the answer is, of course there is. Of course there is. You see, as I said last week, faith is not blind. Faith is not a leap. Faith has content. Faith has substance. There's evidence. There's tons of evidence. Because don't you find it very interesting that the very next words of Christ after this scene with Thomas, here, here's John's words. The very next words, John writes after the situation with Thomas. Listen to what he says. Many other signs Jesus did before his disciples, which have not been written in this book. But these things, here it is, have been 
written. Written. These are written down in order that you would believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you should have life in his name. What is the implication? The implication is the evidence. All the evidence you need is written in the text of Holy Scripture. This is the evidence. You see, I'm going to say something shocking. Seeing Christ in the text is just as real as if you had seen him in person. You see, the Bible has withstood the test of time. The Bible has held up under centuries of intense scrutiny, which means you can trust it. It is itself all the evidence you need to have Christ as the highest treasure of your soul. And so again, as your friend and as your fellow soldier in the trenches and as your pastor, that's what I want for you more than anything else in the world. That's how I pray for you every single week that you would see the beauty of Christ found in the pages of Holy Scripture. That you would see that the essence of the Christian life is not just to keep some rules and tweak a few bad habits, but that you would see that Christianity is to be exhilarated by a person. So you see, when God broke the silence after 400 years by sending his son, this is the son he gave. The word, the light, the king, the son, the I am, the bread of life, the good shepherd, the resurrection and the life, and your Lord and your God. You see, Christmas is not a season or a holiday. It is a person. The most beautiful, satisfying, supreme person in the universe. And so I, I close with this. I want you to make Christmas not just a vacation. I want you to make Christmas a mission. Because that's what it is. Christmas is a mission. A mission that makes it plain in our homes and in our workplaces and in our neighborhoods and on our campuses that, that Christmas is not a fantastical birthday party for a tribal deity, but it's the celebration of when God came to earth as a man. Let's tell the world with unblushing clarity, shall we? That Jesus Christ came to the world not to put presents under a tree, but that he entered into the hay and manure of a broken world in desperate need of fixing. The answer is not to become a bunch of sour scrooges and, Christian, and Christmas curmudgeons who grumble against tinsel and bells and, and mistletoe. Rather, what we must be are those who explicitly celebrate and declare that everything you were created to need and enjoy is found only in Christ. Because again, there's nothing in the Bible. Show me one verse that tells me we should celebrate Christmas. There's not one. But if we're going to do it, let's do it right. Let's go all the way by being supremely satisfied in Jesus Christ because that's not only the meaning and purpose of Christmas, that is the meaning and purpose of life itself. Let's pray. Oh Christ, you are so many different things all at the same time. 
Christ your Lord and King and Savior and treasure. O Christ, you are the bread of life that satisfies. You are the light of the world that solves the deepest dilemmas. You are the good shepherd that cares for us and loves us, provides for us. O Lord, our thoughts about you are so small. And yet you're not angry. You're not angry with our lack of faith. It is grieving to be sure, but Christ, you are a worker with us for our joy. You want our joy, not just joy just because, but joy in you as our all, as our highest hope, as our deepest treasure. Oh Christ, would you please enlarge our hearts so that we may love you and treasure you above all things. And it's in your matchless name we pray. Amen.